Okay, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, a podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about other cultures. My name is Nosa Iyari, and welcome to another episode. Today, I think I have my very first dancer, I would say. Um, have I interviewed a dancer before? Maybe a, a dancer amongst other things, but uh, I have Annalise Estes on the podcast today, and she's a burlesque dancer from Las Vegas. How's it going, Annalise? It's good. Thank you for having me. Most definitely. Yeah, we we're just talking before the episode, and I was telling you that a friend of mine is trying to organize a birthday party in Vegas in March. And we're actually together uh, in December 2019 in Vegas together. So he's, he's trying to go back in March. I think we're supposed to be there again sometime during the summer, but obviously because of COVID, uh, he's planning to go back in March. But um, I'm not quite sure of, you know, what's going on with uh, the Vegas atmosphere. I think I know like casinos are, are open and stuff, but how's like the electricity in Vegas? Is it still, is the atmosphere still as, as electric as a regular Vegas? Um, I think definitely from what I've heard, it's died down a little bit. You know, there's not as many people coming as there normally would be, but Vegas is definitely trying to do its best to get back on its feet. You know, so many people, their jobs and their livelihood depend on um, tourism coming back. And so fingers crossed the vaccine gets rolled out quickly and we can all go back to normal, so to speak. (laughs) Most definitely. Amen to that. Like, fingers crossed, really. Like, it's been a very tumultuous year with 2020, and uh, hopefully this year gets better. Um, But let's talk about you for a little bit. So I I always say, like, the first thing that intrigues me about a potential guest or or a guest is their name. So whenever I'm scrolling through social media or Bumble or one of the many podcast booking platforms I use to get guests on the podcast, like, because this podcast is centered around culture and things like that, like, your name draws me like if it's not a usual name, like I try to ask her, where are you from, where are your parents from, that kind of thing. So give me a sense of like your background. I knew you were born and raised in California, but um, where are your parents from? Um, do you have any um, ancestry outside of the U.S.? So it's actually interesting. I grew up thinking that I was mostly Irish. And so that's always kind of how I identified myself. But then oh, what made you we think did... That? That's what my parents said. You know, we knew that um, our ancestors came from a lot of different places, but I knew that I had Irish on both sides and I was always getting, you know, gifts with Celtic knots on them and things like that. And St. Patrick's Day was a big holiday in our family. So I always assumed that we were mostly Irish. And then we did one of those Ancestry.com tests. We, like the whole family? Yeah, the whole family did it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we found out that we're actually from a lot of different places. So it was was pretty much everywhere in Europe, you know, British, French, German, Polish, Scottish, Irish. What was the one with the most percentage, though? Like uh, what country was at the top? Well, that's what was kind of interesting was it was a pretty even split of a lot of them. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's sort of, I guess, cultures sort of an interesting topic for me because I don't really know which one to identify with when I'm, you know, come from so many places. And so especially I've been thinking about that. And if I wanted to learn more about my culture, more about the traditions that of where I come from, I don't know which one I would pick. (laughs) You know, it's kind of a, a, a blessing and a curse in a way. 
Yeah, I mean, everyone is kind of like mixed, you know, everyone on planet Earth is mixed with different things. Uh, some have mm-hmm. more predominant genes from certain regions of the world than others. But like you said, you know, kind of like a blessing and a curse. Uh, maybe you look at it like if you want to run for president of the world or something, you can claim multiple yeah. countries. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> But what was it like, like growing up in California? Like um, you, you mentioned, like St. Patty's Day was big in your household. Um, does that mean you were chugging beers and getting into trouble as a kid? Like how many siblings you grew up with, uh, with that kind of thing? You grew up in Sacramento, right? Yeah, I grew up in Sacramento and I had one older brother. Um, St. Patrick's Day, we weren't chugging beers. But <laughs> no, my mom, mom isn't listening to the podcast. So yeah. <laughs> My mom, she would always make Irish food, so Irish soda bread and things like that. And then she would also do a bunch of green dishes. Wait, did you guys have family in Ireland? Like your family was super into the Irish thing. So where did they get the thought that you guys were originated? (laughs) Did they just pick the country or? I'm honestly not sure. I think it's one of those things where over the years, it kind of, you know, where we came from got diluted and we didn't really know and until we did that ancestry.com test and then we're like oh we're from all over <laughs> got it got it so i'm sorry as you were saying sorry to cut you short yeah and so my my mom had this fun tradition where on saint patrick's day she would get this pot of gold and she would fill it with chocolate gold coins and all these little saint patrick's day themed gifts and then she would hide it somewhere And then she would write a series of riddles and each riddle would lead you to the next clue. And so my brother and I, we would go find the first one and then we'd have to find the next one and the next one. And it would take us all over the house until we finally found the pot of gold at the end. And what was funny is she, yeah, she started doing that when we were kids, but um, we just had so much fun with it. So I have this memory of being a senior in high school and I actually had a bunch of friends over St. Patrick's Day night. And we all, all my friends and I at like 17, 18 years old did this, this, what do you call it? Looking, looking for a treasure hunt? Kind yeah, of? We, we did the St. Patrick's Day treasure hunt together and we were so into it. And it was just hilarious. Wow, man. Shout out to your mom. Like that's parenting at its finest. I don't think I can ever do that. Yeah. Like, Go play with your PS5 or something. <laughs> I don't know. I know. <laughs> Was your dad as involved? Did, did he also, uh, you know, uh, have like Irish traditions that he did? Like, how was he like? Um, he didn't have as many traditions. I would say he, um, yeah, I guess he, he wasn't as connected to his background. And like I said, he also thought that he had some Irish in him. He knew he had some English in him, but Mm -hmm. that wasn't something that he knew a lot about. Got it. Got it. Okay. So growing up, uh, you know, finding tons of gold and silver and all that stuff, like you, you must've grown up uh, pretty rich of finding all those precious metals. (laughs) I kid, I kid. But, uh, at what point did you like start to develop an interest in dance? Because uh, I guess most people that, you know, pick up an interest in dancing do so pretty early. But can you remember the particular scenario it was for you, how you just saw, you know, that movement for the first time and just resonated with it you know, part that, oh, this is something I might like to do? I was two years old the first time I saw a ballet dancer on TV. And I don't remember this because I was two years old. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I saw that dancer on TV and I told my parents, that's what I want to do. 
And they went and signed me up for classes and I just never stopped after that. Oh, what? wait, you were in ballet classes at two years old? Yeah. Wow, that's Almost super early. Three. <laughs> yeah, that's super it, early. Like a lot of yeah. ballet dancers tend to start like really, really early. And uh, conversely, like a lot of them tend to peak really early as well. Like you, you see people mm-hmm. retiring in their mid twenties or late twenties from ballet, that kind of thing. Like, what, what do you, what, what, what is it about ballet that people have to sign up so early for? Is it that once you're past a certain age, it's just difficult to train your body to be a, be accustomed to the movement? What do you think it is? It's just really hard on your body. You know, basically everything that you do in ballet is not natural for your body to do. And of course, point shoes, that's very unnatural, very hard on your body and on your joints. And so that's why traditionally ballet dancers would be done with their career around their 30s. But we've progressed a lot with injury prevention, which is great. So nowadays, a lot of dancers are able to dance into their 30s and sometimes even into their 40s. I know another difficulty, especially for women, is once they have kids, that really changes their body and it makes it harder to go back. And so that's kind of why dancers, ballet dancers, want to start early because they have such a short window that they can do that. Yeah, and you mentioned injury prevention. Like, you know, for someone like me, like the regular Joe out there, when I see ballet, I'm like, oh, I can do that, you know? <laughs> Except for when I see you guys, you know, what do you call them, the point shoes, like standing on yeah. your toes kind of thing? Like, I, I doubt if I can, like, sustain my own weight with my toes. I'll probably crush it. But you mentioned injury pre- uh, prevention and stuff like that. Like, it's a pretty serious, I guess I can't even say sports because, you know, there are competitions and things like that. Like, what kind of... Uh, routine that where your teacher's putting you through like growing up is are the myths real we're watching all these movies that ballet teachers can be pretty mean you know the your colleagues can be pretty mean it's almost like a military boot camp in a sense but it's just freaking <laughs> ballet dancing you know no offense but yeah how was that like for you uh, kind of like growing up because you started at two yeah it's definitely tough and for me i started at a more recreational studio meaning the girls that were there, they were just dancing for fun. They weren't trying to make a career out of that. And then around the time I was 12 or 13, I got more serious about it and I wanted to try to do that professionally. And so I made the jump into a more professional studio. And that was a big culture shock, (laughs) you know, going from the more carefree, fun kind of environment to that more rigorous training and The teachers definitely are really hard on you and brutally honest. And I think it's it's tough as a dancer because we're not just athletes, we're also artists. And so if you look at sports psychology, a lot of how athletes are able to deal with all that tough criticism is they just put up a wall. And so they're not really letting that emotion affect them or get to them or anything like that. But as artists, we can't have that emotional wall up. You know, Mm. we have to still be sensitive at the same time, but then also have a tough skin. And it's difficult to find that balance for sure. Well, that makes sense. Like I've never thought about it that way. Cause you know, when, when you say artists, you know, you think about musical artists and when, you know, their art is criticized, like, you know, because they're so sensitive, like it affects them because they need that sensitivity to pour into the art. But, you know, merging that with athleticism, like I've never thought about 
ballet dance in that way. And that's pretty interesting to know. But, but what, what are the things specifically? I want you to put some of your ex-teachers on blast. Like, oh, where, where they force you to push up on two fingers? Like, were you guys <laughs> running on the beach for three hours? Like, what was it? What were the physical routines that you guys went through? Um, so as a student, I was typically training about 25 hours a week. And wow. yeah, so it was a lot. And Damn, that's more than I my guess, second job. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm doing right> <laughs> okay. I think it's kind of hard to describe from a technical standpoint what the training was like because all of the ballet terminology is in French. So I, I think if really? I threw, threw that vocabulary out, probably no one would know I mean, what I was You can describe one. About. Like, okay, I went to a military school, right? And there's something, let me see, what was one of the punishments we had back in the military school in Nigeria? Uh, there was something called uh, hanging, I think. Yeah, there was, there was something called hanging where you're, you're, you're forced to hang from, like there can be like a bunch of like six or seven boys or whatever, and you guys are supposed to hang from a tree. And literally the last per- person that doesn't drop, that's the only person that goes scot-free. So each of you, you know that you're just supposed to be there. So sometimes it might go on for like 40 minutes, 50 minutes, like everyone is hanging because no one wants to drop. And you know, one person's arm gives out and he falls and like everyone like, you know, gets canes and whatever and attacks that guy. And you just, you just want to be like the last person standing. So that's one like. Can you, is there something similar? Like even if it's like a French word, I'm just trying to like get into your world and let our listeners have a peek of, of, of what it was like. You know? So I guess some of the hardest things we had to do, my least favorite step, they're called toe hops. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that one's not in French, <laughs> but it's exactly what it sounds like. You go up on point and you're jumping on that point shoe and it's just so painful and difficult. And I guess just really anything where you're in point shoes and you have to um, go up on point over and over on the same leg. Like, I don't know if people have ever seen fouette turns. That's where the dancer is on one leg and they're just turning and turning yeah. and turning yeah. and they just don't stop. They just keep going. Uh-huh. Yeah, those those are awful. <laughs> What's the technique on, how do you even stand on your toe? Do you stand on just the, on one, on your toe, like the big toe or... Is that it pretty much? Or there's a way you arch your foot to kind of like get some bits and pieces of your feet in there or something. I don't know. The point shoes are actually hard. They're made out of Ah. a a combination of like a cardboard kind of material and glue. So those are what are helping hold you up. And there's, there's a platform. The bottom part is flat. So when you go up on point, you have that. And it's still hard. I mean, it's a tiny platform. Mm. it's not doing that much of the work for you but you do have that flat spot so that when you go up on point you have something that you're balancing on interesting interesting i never thought about that okay so you're this 13 14 year old girl you move from recreational to like professional and eventually you you went to school for dance and you Mm -hmm. eventually toured for dance like so two questions like what made you want to study dance specifically um, and how was it like? Because you ended up like going on various tours. You toured several countries in Europe. So how was that like? Like going to school for dance, did that meet your expectation? Did you feel that was necessary to improve your craft? And going into the real world to tour, do a ballet tour in like Eastern Europe and other parts of the continent, how was that like for you? So I guess graduating from high school, I had the option of deciding whether I wanted to go into a college dance program or 
a trainee program, which is kind of like internships, but for dance. And I decided I wanted to go the college dance route because I just felt like I wasn't done learning. I wasn't prepared to be an adult yet. <laughs> you know, I was 17 when I graduated, so I was a little young still. And I definitely think that was the right decision for me. The, the school that I got into was one of the top three programs for ballet in the country, college programs. So it was definitely a good program, but it was brutal. You know, talking about ballet boot camp, that's really what it was. They were so hard on us. And again, building up a thick skin, I think that definitely really, you know, looking back, I think it was almost harder in terms of some of the things they said to us than the real dance world is, <laughs> if that makes sense. Really? So, so they yeah. Were, they were prepping you guys for the apocalypse or something, or the apocalypse I, I that, that never came, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, really. But I guess that's kind of a good thing to be overprepared. Yeah, plus <laughs> you, never, you never know, man, man. Maybe dance might be well get us out of this whole pandemic thing or when the aliens come, you never know. You, yeah. might, you, might, you might need that. <laughs> What about yeah, there you go. What about traveling? I mean, where you went to places like Poland, Austria, Slovakia, Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a cultural podcast. So I want to talk to you about the first country you went to, like to perform and how that was like. And just your entire experience in Europe. Of course, Europe, European culture is different from American culture. How was that for you, like from a cultural perspective? It was really interesting. The first country that we went to was Poland. And it was kind of funny on the plane ride there, we had people asking us, why are you going to Poland? Like, that's so random. Of all the countries in Europe, you could go visit. Wait, on the plane ride there? Was it everyone going to Poland on the plane? I mean, yeah, (laughs) but I I guess they were from Poland and we weren't. Uh, So they were like, why would you pick Poland? But um, our teacher, that's where he was originally from. And so he had all these connections there. And so that's where we ended up going first. And it was just so beautiful. They definitely value the arts a lot more out there, which Mm. is unfortunate that it's not the same in the U.S. But the U.S. is capitalistic, man, you know? Yeah. And it it was interesting to see differences, but also similarities. That's one of the things I love about ballet is you can go take a ballet class anywhere in the world and it's the same technique. It's the same vocabulary. You know, we could take class from people who we didn't speak the same language as them. But like I said, because ballet terminology is all in French, we understood all that terminology. And so we could still take that class. And that was really fascinating to me, having that universal language. Nice, nice. And you ended up going to like places like Austria, Slovakia, the Czech Republic. I've always wanted to go to the Czech Republic. I've always wanted to go to um, Transylvania and Romania as well, like those mm-hmm. two places in Europe, or maybe just backpack through Europe. Did you guys have the chance to, do you guys get the chance to like see the cities in all those countries? Or you were just kind of like working all the time? Like, talk to me about one, uh, like, kind of like, Uh, extracurricular activity or, you know, trip or something? Uh, How did you immerse yourself or try to immerse yourself in any of those countries? We did. We got some downtime, but it was kind of a whirlwind trip. You know, it was only three weeks and we had a lot of cities that we were 
hitting. And so we spent a lot of that time traveling, but we did get to go to some festivals and have fun. And, you know, for those of us who were under 21, it was fun that we could go to a bar and get a drink legally and oh, yeah, things like the, that. The age <laughs> over there is 18, right? Yeah. And that, that's always been crazy to me because in the U.S. you can join the military if you're 18, but you can't drink till you're 21. <laughs> yeah. So that was interesting to see that it's just not as big of a deal out there to them as it is to Americans. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, in America, a lot of times, like, uh, you know, even 40-year-old men act like teenagers sometimes. But uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it is what it is. But what were some of the differences? I know you talked about some of the similarities with the terminologies and the technique of dance, which is kind of like universal. But what were some of the differences that you saw between, like, European dance and American dance that wasn't that weren't obvious to you while we were training in the U.S. Is, was there anything different in particular? I think one thing that's different is going back to how Europeans they they take art a lot more seriously. But one thing that's different, and I almost see this as a little bit of a downside, is that they don't have all of these small regional ballet companies like we do in the U.S. They only have these big national companies. So what's nice about that is those are funded by the government, whereas in the U.S., ballet companies have to get their own funding from arts foundations and places like that. So the dancers in Europe, they get a better salary, they get more benefits, they get all of these things because they're funded by the government. But that also means because it's just these big national companies, it's basically you either get into this, the most prestigious company in your country, or you don't dance at all. At all. You know? Maybe that has yeah. something to do with the size of the countries, because the U.S. is so big, has different time zones. One country in Europe might, most likely might have the same time zone that might just be the size of, I don't know, half of Texas or something. So maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have multiple companies within those small countries, but like one national company. Uh, company or something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of like off the whip. Maybe that's something I think about. But what is something you would change if you were like given the opportunity to become, I don't know, someone very influential or to own your own company one day? I don't know if you have dreams to do that. Is there something you do differently from um, I don't know, the employee perspective or from the art perspective, you know, in the U.S., boring from that experience or maybe some of your own ideologies? I think... I did have one teacher that I trained with privately and that was sort of an interesting experience because she was based in Spain, but she was Russian. And so she was running this Russian ballet school out of Spain and all the students were Russian. So culturally, that was interesting. I'll come back to that later. <laughs> but one thing she did really well was she had a good balance of motivating her students and trying to get the best out of them. And she was a little bit intimidating, but not to the point of being almost abusive like some of the teachers in the U.S. are. She wasn't and a so, sergeant or anything. Yeah, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a European thing. I think that was just her. But I think I for sure want to direct my own company someday. And that's something that I definitely want to take with me is finding that balance of treating dancers like people, <laughs> but also motivating them to do their best. 
you, you mentioned something there. Is that the term in the industry, directing your own company? And what is a company? Do you just have to have like a name, a logo, and some branding, and you get people together every Saturday in the gym, and that's a company? Or are, are there certain things you need to have in place uh, to be considered a company? It can really be anything. I guess I've seen bigger companies, kind of like I was talking about, you have those big national companies in the US. We also have these major ballet companies, but then you also have the smaller regional companies. You have some companies where you know they meet and rehearse once a week and it's a lot more casual. You can pretty much fall anywhere on that spectrum and still be considered a dance company. Okay, so there are different niches and stuff and you can decide to be like recreational, like you started or like professional and get into all these competitions or be like a travel company, that kind of thing. Um, Yeah. That's pretty interesting. That's pretty interesting. Um, One thing I want to ask you, like most of the artists that, uh, you know, we know and love, you know, everyone from Beyonce to, you know, all these artists out there, they did ballet at one point or the other. And it seems like from my layman point of view that, Ballet is kind of like a good foundation for just any type of dance or entertainment, just like maybe the military is kind of like a good foundation to teach you that discipline for like business or anything like that. Would you agree with that statement? And I know you've done some theatrical performances and some entertainment performances. What would you say is the difference between those two? So So I would say for the work that I do, ballet is definitely a really good foundation. And you know, a lot of these different dance styles like jazz and modern and contemporary and um, character, they all stem from ballet. And so if those are the types of dance styles you want to do, definitely ballet is the foundation. That's what you need to learn first. But then I also heard someone talking about this and they were arguing that we should stop saying that. We should stop saying that ballet is the foundation of all dance forms because you have all these cultural dance styles, you know, African dance and um, the Bollywood dancing and things like that. And ballet is not the foundation of those. So I, I think it's yes and no, you know, for the work that I do, ballet is definitely the foundation, but I would not say that it's the foundation of all dance. Like some people tend to overgeneralize. And what's the, what's the difference? Like, okay, you said, you know, personalizing it to you. Like, I mean, you live, live in Vegas now, you're, you're doing more entertainment dancing. Um, have you found, I mean, I guess you've already answered that question, that you found ballet to be a good foundation for you specifically. But what were some of the differences? Was it hard to kind of like make that transition to entertainment dancing? Did it take you a while to pick up? Uh, Because of the kind of movement there are, you know, like for like background dancers in concerts or like things like that or Vegas, or it was more seamless kind of like experience. So I started off, obviously, I started off my career with ballet. I started doing that professionally when I was 16. And I started to get kind of tired of it after a while. I just felt like I had done the same ballets over and over. You know, I, I had danced with the professional companies, which was my goal. And so I kind of got to a point where I was like, okay, now what? And so then I went and joined a modern company, which I don't know if you know what modern dance was, but it was actually created to be kind of the opposite of ballet, which is interesting because now we tend to pair those styles together because there actually are a lot of similarities between them. But I thought that that was going to be really different because 
modern is something that allows for more creative expression. And I thought that would fit me better. And then I started dancing for a modern company and it kind of felt the same. You know, it was the same culture, it was the same environment as the ballet world. And I just, it still didn't feel right to me. And then one day I just decided I wanted to go take a class for fun. You know, dance was my job. I was doing all these rehearsals. It was, I was starting to get a little burnt out. So I was like, I'm just going to go take a class where nobody knows my name. Nobody's, you know, watching me and critiquing me like crazy. And so I went and took this class. It was called Video Vixens. (laughs) And yeah, it was, it was just a fun heels class. And so I went and did that. And then it turns out that that teacher runs an entertainment company. And so she came up to me after class and she said, Hey, I'm holding auditions next week. You should come. And I kind of wasn't sure about it. So I was like, Oh, I don't know. I've never done anything like that. But I ended up going and I got in and I did my first few gigs with that. And, you know, some of them were in nightclubs and one was dancing back up for a rapper, which was like way outside anything I'd ever done. And I loved it. It was, you know, for example, that show where I was dancing back up for a rapper. When you do a ballet performance, the audience is sitting there quietly until the end, and then they uh-huh. clap, and then you go off, and then the next thing happens. Oh, you mean that's not what at a concert? Hip hop shows? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. At a concert, like everyone's hyped, everyone's excited, they're like yelling and screaming the whole time. And that energy as a performer is amazing because like you feed off of that energy and it gets you more excited. And I just love that. And so I wanted to do more of that. So that was actually when I was living in Denver. And then I moved out to Las Vegas after that so that I could start doing more entertainment work. So it was actually a pretty easy transition, I would say, because those first jobs just kind of fell into my lap. And then I think, too, one of the things that was getting me so burnt out with ballet was just being told all the time that I wasn't good enough. You know, ballet has this very specific box. And so I was always too much of this or not enough of that. And then I went and did these entertainment gigs and suddenly all of those things that I was being criticized for. Yeah, they, well, not only did they not matter, but I was being applauded for that. And so it just felt like a much better fit for me. But at the same time, I didn't want to give up my ballet training. And so after a while, I I did all these gigs in different styles. And then I I wanted to come back to my ballet training in some way. So that's why I created my own niche with burlesque ballet. I mean, it's interesting you say that. Kind of like reminds me of my my Indian friend. Uh, we're talking about uh, this national exam that I think all high schoolers um, write to like you know rank you know nationally in India, and it's you know obviously India is well known for like engineering and mathematics and things like that. And it was pretty much like the average student like back home it was like you know he couldn't really get up there, but once he came to the U.S., it was just like <laughs> you know winning all these awards and getting yeah. all these scholarships. It was like oh, I'm appreciated here, <laughs> you know that yeah. kind of thing. So that's that's pretty interesting. But you touched on like burlesque dancing. So when I hear the word burlesque, two things come to my mind. The film with, uh, I think it was Christina Aguilera and Cher yeah. or something. And uh, striptease kind of like a elegant striptease kind of like, how I call it, like an edgy 
performance, that kind of thing. Um, is that an adequate description of burlesque? And you, I know you mentioned burlesque ballet. So I want you to like ask the, the question about my perception of burlesque and what exactly is the niche of burlesque ballet and how you kind of like um, render those performances. So I think your definition is pretty accurate. The movie, I would actually say, is not very similar to what a burlesque show is actually like if you go see one in person. With my style, and that's one of the things I like about creating my own niche is I get to decide what that style looks like. And so for me, I take the elegance and the technique of ballet and I combine that with the tease of burlesque. So I do have, there is a little bit of strip tease in there. I've made the decision. I typically don't get, you know, all the way nude in my acts. And a lot of people assume that's a modesty thing. It's actually more because I think with American audiences, nudity is a bigger deal to us than it is somewhere like Europe. And so I think as soon as a girl takes their top off, you're no longer looking at the dancing <laughs> because you're just distracted by the fact that she's well, topless. I, I would say before the girl takes her top off. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I could say so myself, but continue. Well, I guess that's pretty much the point that I'm trying to make is that, um, and I was kind of worried that people were going to kind of come after me and say, well, that's not real burlesque because, you know, you don't have the pasties that you're swinging around and things like that. But um, so far, no one's taken an issue with how I've defined my style, which is nice. <laughs> I guess that's the beauty of being an artist, right? You get to create your art and interpret your art the best way you see fit and not necessarily like stick to a particular stereotype. Um, but doing like burlesque ballet in Vegas must be pretty interesting. Like, again, this is me having like a general perception. When I think about uh, Vegas performers, I think about like mob control, like, oh, the dancer can't get out of her contract. It's like this thing. They're beating one guy at the back while you, while you guys are rehearsing on stage <laughs> and stuff like that. Have you run into like any interesting scenarios or things that, you know, you can anonymize names and things like that, but have you ever uh, come across interesting uh, situations like the Vegas life where everything's pretty much Corporate. Um, there, there are some some crazy things every once in a while. And there we actually, go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, a lot of the the craziest things that I've witnessed actually happen to other people and not me directly. But you know, you'll see things like one time I was at a nightclub performing, and I was out with one of the other girls, and I look over, and this was a job where we had to be walking around and um, up close to people. And one of the guests came over and she's kind of dancing with her. And then she just licked the dancer, just like <laughs> all of her body, just licked her, but like her stomach. Her <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so was she bizarre. Drunk? Like, like, what's going on? Oh, probably, yeah. And then I've seen, I've seen guests throw ice at dancers I, there's one story, I actually wasn't there for this, but I, I heard about it later where um, someone bumped into a dancer and they, or maybe they, they pushed them. Something happened where the dancer got pushed up against the wall and then another dancer said that and, and this girl was like, 
she she has to be like five three, but she's you know tough cookie, and so she saw that and said, "Oh hell no!" and grabs the guy and like throws him down on the table and smashed everything a on the table. Body slammed the guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was so, a bit interesting to watch. <laughs> yeah, there's stuff like that that happens that gets kind of crazy, but. So no like hangover stories where you like wake up seeing like uh, Mr. Chow in the trunk or something or like a baby. <laughs> yeah, no no tigers. <laughs> no tigers or Mike Mike Tyson just walking through or something. <laughs> Not yet. We'll see. Anything could happen. <laughs> okay, okay. How long have you been dancing in Vegas, by the way? Um, coming up on two years. You know, mm. unfortunately a good chunk of that time has been during the pandemic, but mm. I've still been producing my work virtually, so that's been nice to stay creative. Yeah, yeah. And I saw, like, you know, uh, obviously you you put your stuff out. Like, I love the way you're branding yourself as a dancer. Like, you sent me your website before the interview. Like, got to look at your stuff. It's it's very obvious that you take your craft very, very seriously. And it's interesting to see that. Um are there dances or dancers from other parts of the world that you've drawn influence from that you've kind of like incorporated um, some other techniques into your performance, that kind of thing? Like in your many years, like dancing and performing, have you like done research into dance from other parts of the world? And, and what are some of those dances, if any? I guess I draw my inspiration from a lot of different places and different people, but I've never found any one person where I was like, oh, I want to be just like that person, which I think it's a good thing to try to do your own thing, especially when you're trying to carve out your own niche like I am. But it, it is challenging because especially from a business perspective, you always hear people saying, oh, well, find someone who's doing what you want to do. And then, you know, follow their path and then you know how to get to where you want to go. Well, I don't know of anyone who's doing exactly what I want to do. (laughs) So that, that does make it challenging to find any examples of what I should be doing. I'm just, for the most part, have been trying to figure that out on my own. I've been lucky to have some really great mentors along the way. And I think that's very important for dancers to find those good mentors who can give you that little bit of guidance in terms of, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, in terms of specific people who I've taken bits and pieces from and have been inspired by in some way, I'd say Dita Von Tees is definitely mm, up she's there. A big one. Yeah, she's a big burlesque performer. And I think her branding is really excellent. And she's got some really great books that she's written and that helped me learn a lot about burlesque and what it was and what I wanted to take and what I didn't want to take. <laughs> I don't even think she does like local performances ever, anymore. She's like all international, like Dubai or Russia or something like getting like, a, yeah. I think like 50, 60 or 100 thousand show or something. I'm like, wow, that's, yeah. uh, that's crazy. But that's interesting. Yeah. And she's had a long performance career too, which is great. Yeah, but she she doesn't have any problem like kind of like taking her clothes off or anything. But the way mm-hmm. she does it, like she has this like forties or fifties like style to the whole thing. 
And it just makes it like, like you said, the branding and everything is, is pretty amazing. Uh, you mentioned that it's difficult for you to kind of like pinpoint people who are doing exactly what it is you want to do. So imagine like a, a younger girl or someone like someone who's just leaving high school and is looking at all these burlesque dancers and are like, wow, they, they feel so beautiful, so sexy. Like that's kind of like empowering. I would want to do something like that. What would you advise that person to do? Like where do they start? Mm-hmm. What technique should they focus on? What city should they focus on? Is Vegas kind of like okay? And what are some of like the tips you can give like branding wise or other? I think the biggest piece of advice I would give them is to figure out what it is that sets them apart from other dancers. And that's something that I had to do for myself. When I first moved to Vegas, I remember thinking that, that I didn't know what set me apart from other dancers. I didn't know what my brand was. I, I didn't even really know what to audition for because I didn't know what I, where I was going to fit. And so I was just auditioning for everything. <laughs> but I think once you figure out what it is that sets you apart, then not only can you find those roles and genres that are going to fit you the best, but it helps too when you get rejections. You don't take it as personally because it's not like, oh, I'm not any good and that's why I didn't get this job. It's, it's just a matter of they don't value what I have to offer and that's okay. You know, maybe they're looking for something different, but that doesn't detract from your own worth as a dancer. Nice. What about cities? Are there particular dance destinations you think uh, they should try to be in uh, to be kind of like near close to the corridors of power or that kind of things, particularly for burlesque? Is it kind of like Vegas, the thing? Or it's like Miami or even like abroad or whatever? I think for burlesque, Vegas is definitely a good place to be for entertainment in general. I know before I moved here, I was thinking about LA, but I knew, I just knew that I wouldn't like it there <laughs> because there's so many people and it's so cutthroat and it's so competitive. Everyone but, is moving out of LA right now. Yeah. I, I think one of the big differences between LA and Vegas is that in LA, it's mostly short-term gigs. So, you know, you get booked for a music video, you go shoot that music video and then it's done. Then you have to go find another job. Whereas Vegas has a lot more long-term jobs for dancers. So before the pandemic, I was part of a residency, which means I performed with them every Friday, Saturday night. Yeah. So I didn't have to go find a new job every month or two. That's pretty impressive. You must be a pretty excellent dancer. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I know they don't just hand those out to just anyone, right? Yeah, those are tough. And that one, I... um, I actually got that one not from a big cattle call audition. I just emailed the director <laughs> and talked about why I liked her work and what I felt I could bring to her residency. And then she just a few months later called me up and said, hey, can you come in tonight? <laughs> Look at you with the branding. Like I always say, like talent is never enough. Like like I said, you know, you preparing for this interview, sending me like your resume, your website, like everything about you. Like, it just goes to show. And you actually like did your homework about what the podcast, I can't tell you the number of times I interview people and they have no idea what we're going to be talking about. But you actually like 
dug deep. Okay, what is the podcast about? Okay, it's about culture, but I do dance, but this side can kind of like infuse the dance industry thing, talking about my trips to Europe, things like that. So I really appreciate that and your level of um, just you being deliberate with all that. Like it speaks to the next generation of artists. Like talent is really, really never enough. Like people like to look at Michael Jackson that he was talented, but that dude was one hard worker. Like, you yeah. know, so that's something that people often forget. Um, what's the name of the show that you're a part of in, in Vegas? Uh, what's your residency? Or is it a location or is it a show that moves? It's it's a location. It's not running right now, but it's based out of the foundation room in Las Vegas. So they're at the very top of Mandalay Bay. <laughs> up floor. Oh, is it Mandalay Bay? Is that, that the golden hotel with the golden yeah. windows thing? Yeah. Oh, that, that's interesting. But that's where we had the tragedy a few years ago, right? Was it Mandalay Bay? Yeah, unfortunately it was. Yeah, so it was... took... It took them a while to get back on their feet. And actually, I wasn't dancing there when that happened. But I heard that they were really nervous that they were going to cut dancers after that because they're, they had to tighten their budget. You know, a lot of jobs got cut after that because there weren't as many people staying at Mandalay Bay. So we were really lucky that the, they kept that residency and, yeah. you know, and I not, wouldn't have had that opportunity otherwise. Yeah. And it's not on the strip as well. It's kind of like away from the strip. So it's like. It's on like, the strip. It, it's just it at on the, the strip. Yeah. It's at the end of the strip. Oh, got it. Oh, I, I probably just visited Vegas for a few days. So maybe <laughs> I'm missing my geography there. Um, is there something like, so for most artists, um, right from the point where they started their artistry, like they always have like a set goal, like if I win a Grammy or if I win an Oscar, if I get to perform at this particular venue or if I get to share the stage with this particular band, like I'm set, that's what I've always wanted to do as a kid. You as a dancer, is there a particular milestone that you love um, to hit in your career? I think when I was younger, that milestone was just that I wanted to dance with a professional ballet company. And then, like I said, I hit that at 16 and I was like, okay, now what? (laughs) So that's something, (laughs) (laughs) well, you know, that's something I've had to sort of figure out for myself. And I'm still trying to figure out is what does success mean to me? What does that look like? So kind of what I have come to the conclusion at this point is that I want, I basically, I want to impact people. And I specifically want to impact people who really understand what it is that I'm doing, if that makes sense. So people who are really involved in the burlesque world or the ballet world, having those people watch what I do and say, wow, I really like this. That would mean a lot to me. And just getting to share my work with as many people as possible. I would love to do more touring and take some of my burlesque ballet acts over to Europe. Um, I, I feel like that would be really interesting just to see how they are received over there differently from how they are received in the U.S. I'd love to be able to make that comparison and then also learn from burlesque performers from other cultures. You know, I've experienced the ballet culture in some of those other countries, but I don't fully know what the burlesque culture is like over there. So that's a goal of mine. I, I, th- I guess that's one of my big milestones right now that I'm working towards is being able to go tour in Europe. 
Nice, nice. And we certainly, you know, wish you all the best with that. You know, the podcast, we always like to circle back with our previous guests to see, you know, where they at. And, you know, if you have something you're doing, like a show or anything, you know, we're glad to have you back on the podcast to kind of like promote that. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind with just, you know, the sense of work ethic I have, you know, seen over the last few days that you kind of like hit those. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind. Um, so yeah, I just want to say thank you for coming uh, on the Culture Class podcast. Before we wrap up, um, I like to give my guests a couple of minutes to kind of like talk about if there's something you know you are meaning for me to ask, or if you want to speak to your future self, or if you want to drop your social media handles or promote anything. Uh, you kind of like have the floor for the last few. Uh, okay, so I guess one thing that I'd like to touch on that I haven't spoken about yet is just what I feel dance has to offer in general and specifically to American culture right now. I've always said, touching on philosophy, you know, it's, it's said that the three most important aspects of the human experience are beauty, truth, and goodness. And I think through dance, we can bring all of those things. And I think dance and art in general is such a crucial exposure of values. And I think that's at the root of so many of our, our problems right now. You know, our political problems, our environmental problems, it's all connected to this lack of connection to our values. And so as an artist, I feel that's my job is to help people connect with those again. So like I mentioned earlier, I'm sharing my work virtually right now. I'm doing that through Patreon and I'm using my stage name, which is Gamzadi Balesk. I'm also on Facebook under that name. So you can check out some of my work there for free. I guess those would be the two best platforms to direct people to. I have some other social medias, but those are the main ones that I'm posting on right now. Yeah, and we'll definitely have a link, um, perhaps your website link in the show description. So if you guys want to click on that, you can kind of like see all those pages. Support her. She's doing good work. Uh, and uh, yeah, if I ever make that trip to Vegas in March, depending on how things go, uh, maybe I can I can stop by for a show if you guys are back up. But yeah, thanks so much uh, for coming on the podcast and for our listeners, as usual, uh, follow us on social media as Cultural Class Podcast everywhere. Send us an email or go to culturalclasspodcast.com and drop us a voice note. Uh, and uh, yeah, let us know what you think about the episode. Let us know if you want um, Annalise back on the show and uh, reach out to her and support what she's doing. Till next time, guys. 